Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Welcome to Three Women, Three Ways. We talk a lot on the show about family courts, about police response to domestic violence. We talk about a lot of things, but, you know, I've never had a police officer on the show talking about what it's like from that person's perspective. We're fortunate today that we have uh, retired officer Mark Wynn, Lieutenant Mark Wynn, who is going to talk with us. He's made a, a, a post-police officer career, if you will, and I hope I'm not butchering your biography here, uh, Lieutenant nope. Wynn, but of, of educating, of educating uh, law enforcement and uh, domestic violence community and I would say the public in general about this perspective. So welcome to the show. Is it okay if I Thank call you, you Mark? Yes, ma'am. Mark's fine. Okay. And um, tell. let's start out with, you know, you were a police officer. Tell me about when that was and, and what you did as a police officer. Well, I had actually two two police careers. I, I spent just a short time in the late 70s as a deputy sheriff with the Cedric County Sheriff's Department in Wichita, Kansas. And then migrated back to my home state of Tennessee from Kansas and finished my career in 2000 with the Nashville Metropolitan Police. It's a capital city of Tennessee. We have 1,400 officers and population 8 o'clock in the morning, about a million people. And I grew up there as a patrol officer and then as a homicide detective and spent 15 years on the department SWAT team. Made my way to sergeant, worked in homicide for several years there, and then lieutenant and supervised a domestic violence division, which we created in 1995 after our city had seen an incredible annual number of women murdered in domestic violence cases. And no one at the time uh, was really trying to understand what these cases were all about or how they happened or what the context was of every case. It was just a, usually a cleared case as another white killer. And because I was teaching at the academy domestic violence to the recruits, because I, this was something that I had got into law enforcement for to begin with, uh, they let me put together a, a, a division, and we created the largest in 95, the largest domestic violence police investigative unit in U.S. history with 39 total personnel, a captain, lieutenant, three sergeants, 20 detectives, master's level crisis counselors. And we started looking at these crimes in a different way as though they were interconnected and co-occurring. And what we saw was that murder traditionally thought of as a crime you can't prevent, but this kind of murder you can prevent. And we took a homicide rate of 25 or 30 women every year down to about five in about four years. And now it wasn't complete police success. We had partners, but um, we changed the police culture around domestic and sexual violence to look at it from a different point of view, from a minor nuisance call to the highest priority call you can respond to as a police officer. So that's a long answer to a short question. I hope that works. Well, I'm not sure it was a short question, <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> quite, quite honestly. Um, the, okay. the words that, that uh, you know, I mean, that's an, an amazing accomplishment. And I remember the days when a police officer would be called to a domestic and one officer would stay with the woman and one officer would go walk the man around the block, uh, presumably cooling him down. And then uh, they would, the police officers would bring the man back and they would happily reunite the family and they'd go on about their business, the police officers. And right. as we are well aware at this, from this perspective in history, that's not what domestic violence was all about. But you talked about police culture. What led to that kind of thinking, and how did you change that thinking? How did you change that police culture? 
Well, it, it go it it it's a it took me a, a while. You know, it's one of those things that the um, uh, a police chief from L.A. years ago, Lou Ritter, said, you know, gentle pressure relentlessly applied will get you the result you want. And that's the pace you have to move in when you change culture, especially male culture. But let me take you back to 1959. And earlier you said traditional police would walk a man around the block and let him cool off. Well, that was the that was the approach in the 1970s, which was actually taught to police. It was called a mediation model. New York City Police Department was one of the first ones in the late 60s and 1970s to look at a different way of responding to domestic violence calls. So they tried to teach police officers basically to be mediators and psychologists as though you had equal force in crime in a family when there was no balance there. It was just one person abusing another and it didn't work. Those were those days. But the first time I saw the police answer a domestic violence call was to my own home. Uh, I'm, I'm my brother and three sisters and my mother lived with an offender for 10 years in Texas. And the Dallas police, I have a great recollection of the Dallas police in 1959 coming to our house because the neighbors heard my stepfather beating my mother. Mm. And he sent, when the patrol officer pulled up to the house, the front door, he got out by himself. And my mother and I walked out to meet him to the edge of the front porch. And he was a gigantic man because in those years, you had to be over six foot tall to be a police officer in most southern states. That was to keep women out of policing. And I just looked at him. I thought, thank God you're here. I think I was five or six. And um, he looked at my mother and he said, if I come back out here one more time, I'm locking you up and I'm taking these kids away from you. Oh, and then he God. turned and walked away. <laughs> and, oh, well, yeah, this you. was, this, yes, <laughs> yeah, he, he did. And this was kind of a regular event. Uh, yeah, this this was the way that you deal with these kind of crimes. You threaten people if you call again. That's why a lot of states have laws specifically banning police from threatening a victim of crime because of this kind of behavior from years and years and years of bad policing. But mm -hmm. let me tell you, I, I had my arm wrapped around her leg, you know, like children do when they're that small. Yeah. And she shook like a leaf. And I have to tell you, it's one thing for an adult to hold a trembling child. It's a whole different thing for a child to hold a trembling parent. Mm -hmm. And from that moment, I realized this, there's something wrong with this. And I told myself as a young boy that I was going to be a police officer one day. And I stuck to that dream. And once I got on the police department in Nashville, um, I responded to calls and I heard police officers say the very same thing that that Dallas officer told me and my mother on that porch that night, 1959. Mm. So I realized that there was a culture that spanned across at least two police departments, Dallas and Nashville. And then as I started studying it more, it wasn't just two, it was an entire nation of police departments that dealt with domestic violence as though it were nothing but a nuisance crime. And what it did it caused more death and pain and suffering and it generated a two or three generations of offenders that we're still dealing with today. So that's the culture that I'm talking about, the culture that uh, if you've never lived in it, it's hard to imagine because the other thing that police would say in, in my time as a child and my early years as a police officer, why do you stay? Okay. And, that's what they would say to the victim. And I, and, and I, that's one of the things that drove me to write a curriculum for my academy and start teaching in 1982 because of these bad habits. And what I told the officers in 82, when I tell officers in 2020, uh, is that leaving is not an event. Leaving's a process. And when you talk to a woman like that who has been abused by a man, you're doing what he's doing. You're telling her what to do, and she doesn't need that. She already got. He's got that right beside her. What she needs is options, and she needs someone to navigate her through to the next step to survival. So that's why I think these crimes are fairly simple to understand, but it's a very complex 
approach to resolving it as a police officer. Hmm. You know, you're telling your story about your childhood. I, I just wanted to weep. That that and and I think of how many children have experienced what you experienced. It's just staggering. Um, well, you, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, go go right ahead if you wanted to respond to that. I did. I, I'm well, I, no, I, it's, I think something that that, that uh, over the years, over the last forty plus years that I've done this work, and then ten years of living in this, I guess that that'd be about fifty years of working in domestic violence because you know domestic violence found me i didn't find it but um what we know now from from uh brain psychologists um and baylor at in texas um is that when you expose a child and, and a lot of your business your listeners will understand this clearly when you expose a child to that kind of trauma and violence uh, and pressure and stress you change the development of a child's brain as he grows from the age of you know 12 months to three four years because that's where you learn to walk and talk and socialize so <clears throat> all that violence is baked in often to these children who seem to have no empathy or sympathy for anybody else when they're 15 or 16 years old so mm-hmm. it's important for for anybody police friends prosecutors judges to understand that you want to think domestic violence is a man slapping a woman in the middle of the night when it's much more devastating to an entire family and generations of the family and to the entire community. So this to me is where crime is created for all the crime we deal with in policing. And maybe I'm thinking of it too simplistic, but I've always looked at this way because all the criminals I arrested not all, but I'd say a good portion of them were children who had been exposed to domestic and sexual violence. And they practiced it in their adult life. And that's why they were in my handcuffs. I used to, I haven't done it for, uh, recently, but I used to do some um, presentations at a transitional housing for um, homeless women and women who have been incarcerated. And the first thing that I always asked them when I would get a new group is how many of you have experienced domestic violence? And every single hand went up. And I look at the studies of homelessness, of uh, economic hardship, of incarceration, and the underlying commonality is domestic violence. And so I look at the program to address those particular issues and I think these are great programs, but until you lift that up and look under at what has caused that, you right. can come up with all the shifters that you want, and it's not going to solve problem, the problem for future, future folks. Um, so it's interesting that you say uh, you know, that, how pervasive it is in the light of other future um, behaviors and, and conditions. So I guess I agree it's with you. Sh- it shapes the world. I mean, it literally shapes the world, you change a generation or two, you kill a mother with two or three children or orphans, it alters the, the, that ancestry of the chain forever. Uh, it, I, it's just, it's, it's, uh, and not to mention, by the way, you know, the, the scars that victims carry even after they've left. You know, University of North Carolina has studied breast cancer, cervical, ovarian cancer, all these cancers, you know, tra- traumatic brain injury, all these things, gastrointestinal diseases that women carry after living in a violent relationship and look at what that costs them the rest of their lives. They may be free of the offender, but their life is cut short because of the battering mm-hmm. that they, they experienced. And I, and I tell you that the, the transitional housing uh, is one of those wonderful places. My wife, Valerie, was a police psychologist. We met in Nashville and together. Uh, in domestic violence cases, and when I retired, she started a nonprofit here in Nashville called the Mary Parish Center, and it's a therapeutic transitional uh, domestic sexual violence program. Uh, There's 13 apartments, women stay for two years, and she ran it for 20 years until she just recently retired. And um, I worked closely with her in the program, I think around eight or 9,000 women total over the 20 years. It's still open today, and it's a wonderful program. And the women who would come in, 
Um, I, every once in a while, I was allowed to sit in on the screenings with permission of the applicant to the center and and listen to the stories about you know 35 year old women who've never been allowed to go to a gynecologist or you know uh, uh, Air Force sergeant who was pushed out of her home. She lives in a car under a bridge or you know a, a disabled you know um, nurse who worked all her life in an emergency room uh, and uh, husband beat her so bad you know chased her out of her home she was on the run i mean these are the stories that nobody uh hears and two years for those women often gets them back on their feet it's just a start but mm-hmm. it, it, it's amazing when you think we have a crime that most people think it's not a big deal unless somebody hits you in the face then it becomes a big deal and it's a crime that really takes three or four years or more just to recover from physically, mostly, financially. It's, uh, it, again, I just, and I don't want to single out just crime and say it's the only crime it's not, but I think this is the root. Is that, does that make sense? It's the root of all the crime mm-hmm. that we deal with. Absolutely, and it's very consistent with Mike's as well. Um, one of the things that I wanted to ask you about, you know, getting a little bit back to the actual police response. Got it. Sorry, what, sorry about that. No, that's that's fine. Um, the what what creates the atmosphere that allowed for that police culture to change from what it was in the fifties to what it was in the seventies to what it is now, and how is it different now? Well, I, we're sort of we're living this again now with the Black Lives Matter and yeah. police reform. Now, this is just my opinion. I have great memories in the early 80s when I started talking about my own experience. I started lecturing around the country for the IACP, which is International Association of Chiefs of Police. So I got to meet some of the women who actually started the battered women's movement in the United States. Ellen Pence, Barbara Hart, Joan Zorza, um, Loretta Fredericks. These are women, these are first generation 1970s battered women's movement women who learned from the civil rights movement and brought brought that to, to domestic violence. And they were the ones who pushed law enforcement either through lawsuits to change their methods or legislation where every state legislator in the country was pigeonholed by a battered women group in the state to change the laws that just told police you have to arrest people who commit this crime. So we were forced, law enforcement, I'm going to put myself in the police family right now, we were forced to do the right thing, not because there was strong leadership in law enforcement, but because there were women who said, we've had enough. And we want law enforcement to start doing their job. The Justice Department listened. And I think the first real solid study that came out of the Justice Department was in 84 from the Attorney General that said it's a crime and the preferred response is arrest. That was a monumental shift in culture and policing. But the the pressure didn't come from the government. It came from activism. So it changed everything. And from 84 on, things started to drop around the country. We started to see more laws enacted. We started to see special prosecutors in courts for domestic violence. Shelters had only just started 72, 74, so they were a little bit older than the police reform. But we started to see um, a change in in policing. It took a while. um, And then when you get into the late 80s, there were law enforcement studies conducted by the Justice Department that show that arrest does work, but the police have to be the gatekeepers to make sure the victim gets to other people besides the criminal justice system. And sort of a a, a, a link between today, what we're seeing today and, and, and yesterday, uh, African-American women in the country now are um, asking us in policing, you know, you've got to help us because you're coming to arrest another black man and you've locked every black man in town up in jail now. Why should I cooperate with you? Because you've done that. So we have to look at police reform and why we've jailed so many black men because black women are asking for our help. And if we can't provide that for them from learning from the mistakes we've made in the past, then they're going to turn away from the criminal justice solution 
for their abuse. And that's these things have connected. There's a connective tissue between then and now. But law enforcement culture has taken a long time to change. But we're in a different place today. And now the Violence Against Women Act in 94 from the Department of Justice was a watershed moment as well. Billions of dollars now have come from the Justice Department to create promising practices and role and, and model agencies and partnerships between police and probation and funding for shelters and transitional housing. And that act really supercharged the, the reform through, I'd say, the 90s and up until now. And there's been so many successes. Our homicide rates traveled off to about 30% in domestic violence. Now, that's white, usually whites, when you see those numbers, white people. But the numbers are still pretty consistent, the murders of black women and Native American women, who I think uh, almost always top the list of women killed in domestics. So it's been a rolling sort of a speed up, slow down, speed up, slow down. And now we're, you know, we're, we're looking at bias. I mean, we're finally looking at, I think, correctly bias in policing and its impact on policing crimes uh, where women are, are the victims uh, or, or gender, gender uh, bias crimes. And a good example would be in the recent few years, we've studied um, the reason why we have a half a million untested rape kits in lockers in law enforcement uh, property rooms across the country. <clears throat> a big reason is that law enforcement did not believe the victim who claimed they'd been raped. And we examine the police investigation and we find the bias in the police reporting. And this is modern times. This is not in the 1940s when my father policed uh, when he came back from the war. This was, you know, modern, well-educated college degree police officers saying this woman was drinking and she was out with this guy late at night. And um, I don't believe her. She doesn't look like she's been raped. Those are the things written in police reports. So those are the things that we're taking a look at now. And when you talk about bias, you cannot help but talk about racism, which is connected to the issues that we're seeing all over televisions almost every night now. Yes. Well, and it's difficult times uh, to play devil's advocate here. Um, it must be pretty tough to be a police officer, uh, not just today, but, you know, what, what you were talking about uh, a few minutes ago that policing changed and you were expected to be um, a a mediator and a counselor and a psychologist. And, you know, all of that, I think, has continued and become even more strong today. And I just, I I mean, I sit there and I think I could never be a police officer because I couldn't, I can't wear that many hats. I, I wouldn't be able to do it well. Um, yeah. I, I think it would be a very, very tough thing. And even if you, you're, even if you have a heart of gold, even if you are wonderful, how can you do so many things and be so many things to so many people? Um, I, that, it must be tough. It must be tough. Well, it, you know, it's, it's one of the reasons that, uh, when you look at suicide in law enforcement, um, traditionally we killed ourselves more than the suspects have killed us. Uh, we've had years, two or three hundred officers commit suicide, and we don't hire suicidal people. But when you put people into the thing you just described, day in, day out, suffering and pain and injustice and long hours and and traditionally short pay, and um, it just seems like it, it never ended, you know, bad publicity and bad leadership. Uh, you know the things you had to you had to put up with, court time, um, and then you add to that, you know, um, just being a good person and you care about people and it it wears on you after a while. So there's a lot of science now in officer wellness. I know ICP has incredible officer wellness. I've been working with Chicago Police for the last four years and they've got they've had this problem like we have and they've got a whole unit that just works on uh, suicide prevention and wellness for their officers because of the heavy burden you carry. Um, but, you know, it's interesting. My brother, father, 
uncles. I've got two nephews on duty right now. It's a old Irish police family. Um, they're interesting people, women and men who work in policing. They, uh, you don't get into policing cause you want to drive fast and get a free cup of coffee. Uh, you pretty much know at the first week you're in this business that you could get killed and you could get killed quick. Uh, and you have to be able to keep a smile on your face while somebody's calling you, uh, um, you know, a lot of names. Now that doesn't happen every day. I don't, I don't, I don't want, want officers to walk around feeling sorry for themselves, but these things do happen. Mm-hmm. So, and it can happen in a second. And I don't care where you work. I, I know um, I've lost four friends killed in a line of duty on domestics uh, alone. Not that's not the total number of officers and friends of mine have died in the line of duty. But uh, these things, you know, you worry about. And, and so you carry it home to your family. There's high divorce rates in policing. And, and I remember when I got on Nashville as a police officer, we had about maybe – 40 or 50 female officers, which was quite a lot for a Southern police department. Every one of them had divorced once they got on the police department. So it's a strain on families beyond belief, um, but they still keep coming. Um, Mm -hmm. They, they still keep lining up to take an oath. And um, I don't know how many thousand police officers Heather, I've trained over the last 40 years but these millennial officers are some of the sharpest I've ever seen. And I know a lot of people give them down the road. Um, but I think they are thinking on a level that we, we don't, you know, we don't quite understand. I, I think they communicate with either one another differently. They, they don't have the luggage that, that my father's generation and I carried. They, uh, we don't see as much of the racism and homophobia in the millennials that my generation carried. And, they are anxious and ready they, they, and, and they're, they're learning to work in a village style of protection. When I say this, my language, the village style is everybody knowing everybody's limits and everybody working together to get people to safety. And that means depending on the minister or the emergency room doctor or the the nurse or your school counselor, you know, knowing these people personally and working with them is about a holistic way of, of solving crime. And it takes some of the pressure off police when you look across a room at a coalition meeting and see the emergency room doctor, you know, that you know and saying, I'm taking time out to be here because this is important to me as well. And you see these communities that are, that are healing. That's where you see the murders go down and women are safer. And I keep saying women, I, I, I don't want to discard or say men aren't victims. They certainly are. I'm being more uh, statistically correct than politically correct. So that's mm-hmm. why I say well, women a, instead of men. Yeah. That's all right, because the the vast majority of, of um, victims are women. So I'm I'm good with that. But as it turns out, my father was a, a victim of domestic violence. So I'm certainly aware that it can happen right. with men, but it seems to be a bit sure. of a different dynamic. Um, the... Um, mention that you made about getting more and more women in the police force. Several years ago, I was at a domestic violence conference down in Portland and had the opportunity to speak with a retired police officer. He wasn't actually attending the event. He was there with his wife who was attending. And we started talking a little bit, and he said that he had just recently retired from the police force, and he was doing something similar to what you're doing. He made it his mission to educate and uh, train folks in the field of domestic violence. But what he was saying is that he really was happy about the increase in women on the force because he said he thinks he thought that uh, women handled things with a lot domestic violence in domestic violence situations, um, and they were able to dampen situations where uh, perhaps a uh, a male officer would end up escalating it. Has that been your experience? I know that's a gross generalization, but uh, do you? No, I, I have trained uh, female officers uh, at the London Metropolitan Police and Moscow Police, Beijing Police. Um, uh, I've supervised female officers. I've worked for women officers. Um, the The National Center for Women in Policing Studies tell us that female officers generate fewer lawsuits than male officers. They generate fewer complaints from the public. They generate fewer 
use of force situations than male officers do. But we still lag about 10% nationwide. Now, the Canadians have outpaced us for years. I do a lot of training in Canada and the Mounties. They they have a lot of women in the Mounted Police and across the whole the provinces. So women make us better at what we do because, my God, why would you not want to have at least parity with the population that you um, have when you police force? And this is, you know, part of the issues we've had with the inner city problems with you know, putting young male white officers in the middle of the inner city, and that was all they saw. People saw us in their police cars. Where you know, this this diversity is the key. Now, some of your bigger agencies, Chicago, New York, you know, San Francisco, Dallas, they they're much more diverse, but still, police departments across the country lag. It's still a male-dominated profession, a white male-dominated profession. So we need women in policing. Um, I'd prefer working. With women, I'm not anti-man. You know, I are one, as they say. But um, I've, I, you know, I've worked with some incredible female officers in homicide and intelligence. We had a female officer from our SWAT team, and um, I just, you know, I just prefer working with female officers. I, I just, it just worked out that way. Not, I've got a lot of loving brother officers, but women bring something different to policing, and. But we don't want, you know, male officers to think that we want to hire women just to work these cases of domestic and sexual violence. That's not, that wouldn't be fair. You, I tell male officers, you should have the same skill to deal with these crimes against women as a female officer would. Um, now, European police, traditionally, that's all that handled these calls. I know the British police in the mid-80s, I was over there training police, and they weren't a single male constable in the class. And I asked these women constables where the men were and they said this is not men's work Ooh, now, interesting yeah well they, I mean they were being sarcastic but they were being truthful that mm-hmm. the police departments would, would assign women to the crimes where women were the victims and you know that's been a real challenge for me is teaching police male officers how to be as sensitive as female officers and I'm not a woman so Mm-hmm. Uh, I depend on other women to teach me, and I, I'm advocate trained. I, I have to tell you, um, I owe my real formal education to understanding these crimes, not from law enforcement, but uh, trained advocates who worked with victims for years and kept women alive long before we were. So I credit them. And But transferring that over to somebody is not an easy thing to do as, as an instructor. But it's a challenge, and I like it. So I've spent a lifetime practicing it. It seems to me that back in the 70s when women were first uh, allowed to be police officers and firefighters and all of those things and and military personnel, um, I can remember the big discussion about how this would be, you know, irreparably damaging to the department and the work that it does if you had some weak little woman come in. Um, That was a big deal. It was a very big deal. It's hard, I think, for young women of today to understand um, what kind of a struggle that was just to get into those fields. But when you mention about areas that only had women or only have women dealing with women's issues, I'm wondering if that's from a sense of uh, justice or if it's more from a sense of this is less important, so we'll put the women there. It's You know, it's hard to tell from department from the department, but the the women officers that I talked to in those years, you know, would tell me that men, male officers just did not want to work with battered women. They didn't want to work with rape victims. And, and, and by the way, leadership in law enforcement should have said, no, that's not going to happen. You're going to respond to this victim like you would any other victim. And what it did actually, it not only created a problem for um, the victim, Police were sued because we had differential treatments. You, you take a look at the way we treat you know, domestic violence victims from other victims of crime, and you're more more likely to be arrested for, you know, stealing somebody's property than you were beating up your wife. Male officers were making those decisions of walking away too early. So, out of frustration, department said we can't depend on male officers to handle it correctly. So, let's see if the women officers can handle it. A lot of that went on. I'm not saying that's a, 100%, but it was misguided. 
Um, it, it wasn't really looking at what a police officer is supposed to know how to do uh, because the law is gender blind. And it doesn't say, you know, we're going to work hard for male victims and chase male offenders, but we're not going to, you know, waste our time with female victims. Is just is kind of insane. And police paid millions of dollars in lawsuits because of that failure to respond or act. And, you know, I teach that today with police. I say, let me just tell you where we were and how we got here, and let me show you the lawsuits that brought us here. And what's usually there is, you know, uh, a lack of understanding or training of this crime. Now that's all changed. We're we're moving forward, but you know it's been an interesting journey to watch um, women try to make it in law enforcement. I, you know, I, the first real generation—I say real—I say the first. Let me just say the first generation of women who were allowed to work in patrol cars have all retired now. Um, we started to see women in police uniforms that weren't skirts. They were once they hit patrol cars, they were allowed to wear slacks, and that was seventy two, seventy three, seventy four. Those years, usually around the country, those women have now retired, and the next generation we're into about a couple more generations now. But I've got good friends who that some of them made it to captain, assistant chiefs around the country. Some you know, state patrol officer and retired. But you know, we reminisce about how women officers had to deal with you know, not being trusted or being sexually assaulted or harassed through their career and and looked at as less than. And I think over time, women have shown the world that they can do anything a man can do, uh, include die in the line of duty. And a lot of women have died in the line of duty. Uh, we had a young Virginia officer, Ashley Gwendon, just a, a few years ago, a uh, Marine right out of the Marine Corps, went to work for a Virginia police department, went through the academy, was sworn in on Friday, was killed on Saturday by a domestic violence offender. Oh. So when you talk to me about women and what they give to law enforcement, I just you tell people, just take a look at Ashley Gwendon's case, and you won't have any questions as to how women, how they perform and what they're willing to do to protect people. So we're getting there, Heather. We're not there yet. I mean, I'm not naive. You know, you don't, like I said, gentle pressure relentlessly applied is a, probably the best formula for change here, but we we got a long way to go. Uh, we're not there yet. We've we still got like 17% of rape victims calling the police, and the rest don't trust us. And we know that because we've asked them. Now, I may offend, look, let me say this. The people that listen to this podcast, if it's police officers, they might get upset about what I'm saying. But I, this is family. I'm talking about my family, the police family. And we've done some some uh, interesting things to people, and they don't trust us. Well, in 2015, the National Domestic Violence Hotline, funded by the federal government in Austin, Texas, surveyed women and 80% of those women called said they were somewhat extremely afraid to call the police. Um, 40% said they fear retaliation from the abuser. 20% said they were worried about losing their children. And only one in five said they felt safer after the police got there. That's 2015. So if you're not looking at what the victims are saying about your police department, you're you know, you're just um, you're asking for trouble, uh, and you're not looking at the, the the real issue. So, I don't want police who might listen to this think that I'm you know I'm being hard on you. I just know what you're capable of, and I know that if you know if we had police hitting on all eight cylinders, well, we could save a lot of lives in this country. Yeah. I want to go back a little bit. We talked about how in the 50s and 60s there was the mediation model. In the 70s, um, they the the police culture, the police uh, uh, the common uh, police approach would be to see it as something where the the perpetrator would have to just be cooled off, and then everything would be fine when he cooled off and he went back home. Um, what how how what other evolutions have has this thinking gone through to get us to where we are today? 
Well, the the culture had to be backed up with a change in the laws, and I think that that's that is significant when the criminal code finally defined these crimes. You know, the, the not only did it define it, Heather, what what the the genius move that battered women's movement did when they convinced legislators to change the law. They didn't just say we want you to define. Uh, domestic violence. We want you to define how police should respond. Offering transportation to a safe place, offering assistance with a warrant, arresting an offender with probable cause, photographing injuries, you know, uh, victim-centered, trauma-informed approach, Um, you know, offering a victim a safety plan, learning how to do a a risk or or lethality or danger assessment at the scene with a victim. you know, slowing down, getting images on body camera footage now. All, all those things um, were baked into the law. It said you got to do these things. You can open up a criminal code book and you define auto theft, but it doesn't tell you how to arrest an auto thief. But with domestic violence, it does. So that really put teeth in the change in culture. That was a big movement around the country. And it's still going on today. I mean, we... Just recently, around the country, they defined strangulation as a felony, and um, it's it's in most states it's an individual crime within itself, and it often describes you know what you should have as evidence, and it. it's it's really organic. The law, I love the law, uh, and it's because it's a great equalizer, as you know. But yeah. it was the it was the it was the juice I think that that got the engine moving faster to change the culture. And then the other thing, too, Heather, is that we finally, after all these years, started to talk about officer-involved domestic violence. You know, I've I've trained the Tacoma Police Department, fine agency, uh, but we all know what happened there. They're not the only agency that have been burdened with this kind of a case, but the brain, Richard Brain, the chief of Tacoma, stalked and killed his wife, Crystal, and killed himself. That was kind of a watershed moment. And after that happened, a lot of people said we've got to do better and we started formulating policies on officer involved domestic violence i spent the last 20 years training police chiefs for iect on how to screen and interview and do backgrounds and look for that violent person before you hire him as a police officer that is a major change and 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 two it's telling the public that you we have integrity because we'll lock up your uncle for abuse and we'll lock up our captain for abuse as well that I'd say, uh, and we're not there yet. We, we got a lot of work to do in that field. Uh, but I worked these cases for six years in Nashville. I supervised officers in both cases. They're difficult, but it really says a lot. It's a, it's the way you communicate to the to the citizens. We're not above the law, and we'll lock anybody up that breaks the law. And it doesn't matter if it's the chief, you know, or the judge, or the mayor. They break the law; they're going to be arrested. That that sends a message to those women who who don't trust us, and um, it, it's uh, our oath of office means something. So that that is big stuff. I'm I'm, I'm kind of giving you a scatter shot here, but I, there's a there's a lot of big things in in all of this. Where you know, 30 years ago, I've said that that won't happen in my lifetime, but we're seeing it now. We're seeing a change. I'm I'm glad to see it. it's not it's not fast enough, but we're we're in it now. And the reform that's being that's being um, uh, pushed by the protest over uh, police brutality, the reform uh, to reform police, I think there's some real opportunity for us here. I think if, if we what, can get well, I tell you, I think if we could find a way to decriminalize certain things, put it in the hands of uh, a service officer, public service officer. This is going on, by the way, around the country. Mental health response teams who can come to calls where they don't necessarily need a gun. These things can be figured out by, you know, categorizing the calls. But let, you know, experts do that work and let police spend more time on sex assault and domestic violence and stalking and elder abuse and child abuse those crimes where you need law enforcement because there's more likely going to be an arrest. More time on that call. You spend more time on that call. You, it's a more meaningful experience. You're less likely to have a repeat of that case, and that lowers 
the assault on officers, the death of officers, the deaths of victims. That's where I think the opportunity is. I think if we can free up time for officers to do this kind of really dangerous work, that um, we'll see a we'll see a result in the end, and uh, the public will be happier with us. I, I, that's how I feel about police reform. I, I and I think that's a very optimistic view, and I'm very hopeful that that is in fact what what will occur here. Uh, certainly, a time of change um, in in so many arenas, and let's hope that it's also a time of change for the domestic violence and sexual assault arena as well. One of the the things when I first started being trained, and you, you and I talked about this uh, off the air about how you know I was trained at the University of Colorado Denver with Barbara Paradiso, who started the program there on domestic violence, and she was one of those people along with Barbara Hart, who was uh, instrumental at the beginning of the movement. And Barbara Hart, by the way, she's the one who wrote a wonderful woman attorney. Uh, she has retired, but uh, she's the one that I was thinking of the other day when we were talking, and I said she's the one who wrote the introduction to my book that I did. Oh, um, right. Yeah. So I know I know about Bar Paradiso at the University of Colorado. She's got this incredible program. You you're a graduate, yeah. obviously. I am, uh, it's, yeah. it's a master it's a masters in domestic violence. Who ever heard of such a thing? Uh but she yeah. she's from the old she's the old I don't want to say old not the right word, but she's one of the women who started the battered women's movement. She was there in those early days, like you said. So she's uh, she's uh, legendary. Uh, I I, I tell people all the time, they say, who is your favorite police officer? And I say, let me tell you about the women who who are my heroes. And and she's one of them. Well, I'll tell her that. I I owe her some. She did a program um, before what I'm calling the zombie apocalypse occurred. And I told her that I'd send her that. um, I'd I'd send her that audio and I haven't done it yet. So when I get finally get get my uh, act together and send her that audio, I will tell her that you and I had a nice conversation about her. <laughs> right. Um, well, you know, Heather, yeah. she's trained a, a generation now of of not just advocates, but advocate leaders. She basically has a police chief master's program for, for women who want to be leaders of state coalitions and break crisis, you know, divisions and police departments. I mean, she, this is, she's, uh, this is the executive core. And that's my view. Now, she probably wouldn't call it that, but the executive core of women who are taking us into the future around violence against women. A very good friend of mine, Laura Markward, is a graduate. She's executive of the shelter in, in Detroit now, and she went through Barb's class, and it's changed everything for her. She'll be a national leader one day, and Barb's responsible for that. Yeah. Wonderful. And the the thing that, you know, moving along with all of these changes in policing and uh, the the research in the last 20 years over, uh, over domestic violence issues, I think that's done so much to help. Um, because it's one thing to say, okay, police officer, you need to do this, this, and this because this right. and this happens. It's another thing to say, look at these studies. There's four studies here that show that, no, women do not lie, lie about this. You know, no, they are not. You know, it's, it's different when you can uh, show some evidence um, that what people are saying is, is actually true and you should start acting on it, I think. So that, that research component of Barbara's program, although they're not focusing so much on research right now but, uh, because a lot of people are doing it, but uh, that's a huge thing. That's absolutely huge to get the actual data on what's happening. Um, if you're looking to make some change, you know, it's all well and good to say, well, I think we need to change. But it's another thing to say, look at this, this, and this, and this is why we need to change. Um, and I think that's uh, one of the, the, the that we can lay the, the thanks uh, at Barbara Paradiso's feet for that as well. No, I, I tell you, the, the data that has been just amazing for police in the last 20 years is the data that's coming from uh, Northern Arizona University from Dr. Neil Websdale, who runs the National Fatality Review Program. And what Neil has done, he has set up fatality review uh, teams literally all over the world. Um, And these teams analyze domestic murder um, to understand how it happened and what you can do to prevent it. So, you know, on a... um, 
small level of uh, of a city, they know what to fix next. But on a, on a world level, Neil's looking at numbers that tell us where we should go in the future, and the kind of things we should train police to do. The the what's valuable, and what works in saving people's lives, and that's coming from raw data from these fatality review committees all over the world. Uh, Webbsdale's just an amazing character, another real leader in this movement. And and you're right, his data is driving it and and is really asking the federal government to, to look at this data. I mean, I, CDC now, you know, um, one in five women will, will be a victim of a, a completed attempted rape in their lifetime. Hey, look, that's 32 million women. Mm-hmm. Uh, these numbers are just, when you hear them, you think, and only so many women report what are the true numbers? We still don't know uh, the, the the true depth of these crimes and its impact. I mean, I, so I'm with you. I, I think the studies that Dutton and and um, Zorza and um, Nancy Lemon up at Berkeley and others have done have given us the guidepost. And um, you can look at uh, all of the the coercive control work that's being looked at now. In Scotland, the Scottish police now can arrest you for emotional abuse. Um, and right, that's coming. The whole, uh, you know, Great Britain did that about a year and a half ago, I think. And that right. I actually wanted to, to ask you about that because you've done so much training and speaking throughout the world. I mean, uh, from Russia to Ireland to England to Canada to Germany and China and even Aruba. And there's too many for me to even mention. But you've done this training all over the world. How do we stack up? Um, in our country as as to the progress that we're making, the approaches that we take, how are we stacking up with some of the, the rest of the world when it comes to handling domestic violence and training police officers to handle it? Well, we're, we're certainly advanced uh, for, for a lot of countries. I think the English and the Australians are, are, are matched us or, uh, or have gone past us. I think the Canadian police are phenomenal. I mean, I... Um, it's rare that I run into a Canadian police officer that can't just, you know, tell you from A to Z what this crime is all about. Um, um, the Australians, there's a incredible amount of research going on at uh, Queensland University of Technology and the, the, the New South Wales police just implemented uh, a offender focus model for their law enforcement because their homicide rates are so high. There, there's countries that are really, really advanced. Um, I, I, today, I, I did a conference call uh, with the Prosecutors Association in Kenya, in Nairobi. We're going to put together a training course for prosecutors on domestic violence for July. And, you know, a lot of the African countries now are starting to get some speed. Uh, I've trained in Ghana and Namibia, and they uh, have ratified what's called the Istanbul Convention, which is a European version of the Violence Against Women Act that we passed in 94 here in the United States. So you're starting to see these things implemented in these police departments, these prosecutors' offices, and these courts, and they're becoming a little more advanced. And whenever I train police in foreign country, I, you know, I have to tell them, though, that I'm not here to tell you how to do anything. I, I'm going I to tell you what we did wrong. And so they won't make those same mistakes. Um, Last year in Moldova, we had long conversations about uh, attitudes towards this crime, and and some of these younger officers said um, that was the last generation. That's not us. We're we're ready. You know, we're partnering with our female officers. So it's interesting to watch these cultures because the thing that's common here, obviously, is the crime itself. It's the same wherever you go. Um, You know, the old power and control wheel that Ellen Pence created in Duluth back in the 80s. I've seen it translated mm-hmm. about 150 languages. Hmm. Hmm. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. Some things are universal, I guess, huh? Oh, there's no question about it. I mean, and, and again, when I say simple, it's just, you know, I'm, I'm going to control you and I don't care what I have to do to do it. Uh, and I, mm-hmm. and I'm going to, uh, um, you, you are not, you don't belong to yourself. You belong to me. And that's, what they believe and you and you hear these things you think oh come on that's 1950s and it's not i mean uh you, i've had stories all over the world of you know people telling me that's 
when we go on a call as an officer, we don't go to her. We go to him. We have to respect his home, uh, so we don't talk to her. I've heard that. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, the Chinese police I, were fascinated to be because I had these notions about what the communist country would look like, but I found them, the, at least the Beijing police, to be very educated, uh, very prepared, very understanding of the crime, and um, uh, they could police, I think, in any, any city in the United States. Now, that's Beijing. I, I hadn't been out any other part of the country, Singapore, I've trained there, and the Singapore police are phenomenal. They're just on a, they're on another dimension. Singapore is another planet in a lot of ways. But it's interesting, you know, uh, Mauritius police, uh, you know, I've trained them in Mauritius and near Madagascar. And uh, it, But the, the thing I think that allows me, and I'm not an academic, uh, hell, you can tell that, I'm more of an applied science type. So my, you know, my work is my vocation and I teach that to the to the police so it's easy for me to talk to these officers and prosecutors because once we start to talk about the crime we're, we're you know we're all in I mean it's the same in Budapest as it is in and um, Boise <laughs> it doesn't matter uh, it's, it's what the law allows you to do is what's different often and that's why these conventions like the Istanbul convention you know gets a a group of countries to say this is a good thing, and we should we should offer relief and arrest for these kind of offenders. So again, a long long answer to a short question, but it's 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 moving. And by the way, the world looks at us and admires the work that we do, and that's why you know I spent a lot of time working for the State Department as, as a Fulbright specialist, and they'll call me and send me to these countries and. And I'm always amazed, you know, I'm in these rooms with these really, really, really smart people. And I, and I say, I'm, you know, I don't know where to start. I said, uh, why would you even need me to be here? And they say, we want to find out what you're doing in the United States. Um, so it's 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 an interesting um, um, theater right now for all of us in policing. Well, I feel much better that people as knowledgeable and as sensitive to the issue as you are out there making, you know, doing all this training. So I really appreciate it. I'm looking at our clock and I'm going, I can't, it, it can't, we can't possibly have talked with nearly, for nearly an hour, but we have. We Aww. didn't even talk about some of your many publications and films. Um, if somebody wanted to learn more about some of the things you've written about, and uh, where would they go? Well, I've got a website. It's Mark Wynn, M-A-R-K-W-Y-N-N.com. Um, I've got just a ton of stuff on my website. I, of course, I'm on Facebook as Wynn Consulting and LinkedIn. And I do the digital thing, you know, uh, connecting with people, and it's been interesting to learn that as an old dog. Um, but... Um, I'm available for, you know, for trainings and consulting. I, I stay busy. I do about 65 or 70 trainings a year. As a matter of fact, I think in the last 20 years, I, I, I was keeping up with it for a while. I think I travel around two and a half million miles and been to oh my God. Thir- 1,300 towns, cities, and villages in 50 states and 16 countries. Um, so I'm on the road quite a bit. But uh, and, I, and I think the other thing, too, is, there's a lot of really talented people doing this work. I'm just one of many uh, cops and judges and prosecutors who are, who are changing the world around domestic violence. So I'm not the only one. So if people contact me and they don't like what they hear, I can help them find the person they want. I mean, I, I, I like networking and helping communities. So, um, you know, it's, it's, it's exciting time. I'm, I'm really happy. Uh, right now where we are. We've got a lot to do, but I think we're in a better place today. Well, thank you, and I'm sure that you're responsible for a great deal of getting us to that better place. Mark, I would like sometime in the future, if you can fit it in with all your traveling, I would like you to uh, come back to the show and give us another update. Um, Maybe after all this turmoil that we're going through right now is over and things shake shake down and and you can get an idea of what how this is all going to change policing uh, in the future, especially when it comes to domestic violence and sexual assault. I would love it if you could make time to come back. It would be my honor, Heather. I appreciate your interest, and thank you for thinking enough of me to ask me to be on your show.
Well, thank you so much for coming and sharing your, your wisdom with us. And that's markwin with two N's dot com. And uh, you can go look at all of these many, many publications and films that Mark has done. And uh, thank you. Thank you for listening to Three Women, Three Ways. Join us again next week. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChampaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.